kind of a loaded question because you're looking at the bulletin probably, but if I were to ask you, when you think about God, what are some of the first things that come to mind? What would you say? Patience, love, and that's it. <laughs> Supreme. Jealousy is one of the things that rarely comes to mind when people think about God. This is probably uh, one of the most misunderstood and neglected attributes of God. God is jealous. It is so important to understand what it means that God is jealous, uh, how it uh, applies to our lives as either believers or non-believers, and as believers, how we're to live in light of the fact that our Heavenly Father is jealous thought we would start in Exodus 20 today and realize that to understand jealousy, you need to understand supremacy. I had originally thought about taking these as two separate attributes. And as I got closer uh, and studying them more so and beginning to try to prepare the actual manuscript of sermons, I realized you can't do them well separately. They, they, these two go hand in hand. Realizing all the attributes of God kind of fold over and weave into one another. These aren't things he feels sometimes. They're, they're descriptions of revelations of who he is and what he is like. So Exodus 20, we'll start there and we'll slowly um, unpack his supremacy, his jealousy, and his applicability. You like that word applicability? It's just because it rhymes. Uh, God is highly applicable to your life. I mean this attribute. So Exodus 20, this is dealing with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Moses is is up on the mountain. And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we really could spend several weeks on these verses. There, there is just, it's like a buffet of meat. But we're not going to spend a, a month on this. We're going to focus in on supremacy and jealousy, and I do that because I might need more stuff to preach from down the road, so this is a, you know, is a, not really. But as you look at this text, you see the first two commandments, and you see the, the reference there in verse 5 of, of God being a jealous God. We often read, and we'll, you know, I'm the Lord your God. It just kind of flies right by, doesn't it? I'm the Lord your God. Well, if you slow down, and you take those two words, Lord, God, and think about what they mean. He's saying something very clearly. He says, God spoke all these words. Right? So Moses is on the mountain. He's like, I'm the Lord your God. And Moses is like, duh. You know, I know who you are. You know, I'm like, I am Pastor John, your pastor. You know, she's like, what is, what's wrong with him? You, know, you ever introduce yourself to someone you know? Bob goes home and his, his daughter's there. I am Robert Byerly, your father. She's like, where have you been? Are you drinking? Well, why does he say, I am the Lord your God? What he's saying is, I am Adonai Elohim. You're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Thank you so much. Well, what does that mean? He's saying, I am the king of kings, the strong creator, right? Adonai comes from Yahweh. You know, the, 
The two yuds, if you know Hebrew, they got marked later on in the, Ma- in the Masoretic text. When, when God says, I am who I am, you know, Jewish people don't, they, they, they put this, they call it Adonai, because you can't read, we, we say Yahweh. That, that's the English pronunciation of the Hebrew word that Jews don't say, because it's too holy of a name to say. They'll say Adonai, Yahweh, I am. He says, I am, I am, your Elohim. I am a, the strong creator, right? He's saying, I'm the king of kings. I made everything that belongs to me. That's how he's prefacing the Ten Commandments. God says to Moses, hey, remember who I am. I'm the one who made it all. I'm the one who owns it all. In other words, I am supreme. I'm above everything. Nothing goes before me. Nothing is above me. Nothing is more important than me. Nothing is more powerful than me. And you're like, so what? Well, flip up to Isaiah and turn to chapter 42 for a minute. We'll work at these Bibles a little bit. And in Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Okay? So God's saying, I'm supreme, that's my position, and then in these first two commandments, he says, don't you dare put anything in the position that's rightfully mine. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. He's saying, nothing is to come in your life before me. Nothing's to be more important than me. And you're not to worship anything other than me. We say, well, who would do that, right? You know, in, the, in the Bible... People worship strangely, don't they? they? They build these altars and they bow down to the altars. Or You know about Dagon, the fish, the fish man god? You guys know him? You got to read through it. It's a great story. They worship the, 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 this fish god man. They make a giant statue. The Ark of the Covenant came before Dagon once when it got stolen. You remember what happened to Dagon? Well, he fell down, right? So the next morning they propped him up. You know what happened? He fell down. His head and his arms came off. Well, you know what God is saying? You, you took the ark, right, representative of God's presence. God dwelt in that ark. Put it before another god, this big, powerful fish god. He said, nobody's standing in my presence, right? So they prop him back up. All says, what, what's going on? Well, we don't do that crazy stuff, do we? we? We don't worship false gods. We don't put anything before God. As believers, obviously, we don't put anything in our life before God. Nothing's more important. Wait a minute. Oh, we do, don't we? That's well, a little bit of a frightening proposition, isn't it? Now, we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, my goal today is to, to scare you first, comfort you second, and then make you really uncomfortable when you leave here today. Okay? So if, if I've done this right, that's where we're all going to sit. But not with a frightening discomfort, a good holy discomfort. But God goes on here in verse 5. He says, for I am a jealous God. Why? He's saying... I'm supreme, don't put anything in front of me, don't worship anything other than me, because I'm jealous. So he's like a domineering boyfriend or husband. Don't you look at anybody else, don't you talk to anybody else, don't you leave this house, because I am the one who gets your affection. I don't want you looking around, I don't want you talking to other people, you just stay locked up in the basement, and you act right. What's wrong with God? Is he that insecure? Is he afraid of the competition? Is that what it is? 
It's God like, well, you know, Dagon, is, he's pretty impressive, and some people might be attracted to Dagon, so, so just don't look. Don't look. You know, he's got this non-compete clause. You, you can't look at other gods. You can't go anywhere, but you have to stay with me. Is, is he a control freak? Is he domineering? Is he insecure? Is he afraid? What, what's going on that, that God is jealous? Well, what does it mean when you think of jealousy? Anyone here ever been jealous of anything? No, no hand goes, I love this, but hypothetically, if you have a friend who you know that was jealous once, what does it mean to be jealous? How would you articulate that? Lack of trust, it's covet something someone else has. You want something or envy something someone else has, and you wish it was yours, and to a degree you hate them because they have it, right? The Webster definition is, a painful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined by a desire to possess the same advantage. Pretty good. Who am I to argue with Webster's, right? Another one I read is when someone else has something you don't, and you want it, and you hate them because they have it. I thought that works sometimes. So is that what's going on with God? It can't be. That's sin. And in Ephesians 5, 5, that, that definition of, of jealousy is put in the same category as idolatry. In Galatians 5.20, it's called a work of the flesh. So obviously, that's not the jealousy of God. But check this out. If, if you keep your finger in Exodus 20, and you move over here to Exodus 34, and understand what's going on. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, right? Moses came down from the mountain, or a bunch of others after the Ten. Moses comes down from the mountain, and remember what was going on? There was that golden cow thingy going down just so Aaron said it, it just so happened that the gold got thrown into the fire and poof, out came this golden calf and I tried to stop him, but I couldn't. He was a lion dog, right? So Moses took the, these tablets and he smashed them down and broke them. And then he came back up the mountain. You want to you know about the grace of God? He comes up the mountain. After these people have broken these commandments that God wrote on the tablets, he says, Moses, come on back up. We'll try this again. You get two tablets. We'll try it again. And here in, in 34, Moses is back on the mountain. And God says to him, look at this, starting in verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their sherem, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous, Elkanah, is a jealous God. It's not that God sometimes feels jealousy, it's that God is jealous. Adonai, Elohim, Elkanah, his name is Jealous. It is part of who he is at all times and in all ways. So what, what type of jealousy is it that God has? When you and I are jealous, it's an inward-focused jealousy. I don't have that, but I want that, and I hate you because you have it. It's all about inward focus. With God, it goes to an outward focus. We're jealous of, God's jealous for. We're jealous of what other people have. God is jealous for us to have something or for something to happen. I'll unpack it this way. Let me give you the, the jealous, the, the virtue definition that I wrote down here so I don't, I don't mess it up as I speak it, assuming I can turn the page here. It's a zeal leading to a total selflessness 
which is designed to protect or repair a love relationship based on the jealousy he has for the honor of his name. I'll say it again. It's a zeal to protect or repair a love relationship based on the jealousy he has for the honor of his name. What does that mean? It means God's name will be honored. That's not an, it's not an if question. It's a it will question. And God is jealous and he has the desire not only that his name will be worshipped, that, that just will happen, but he desires that we will worship him, that we'll put nothing before him, that, that nothing in our life will be more important than him so that we can live the way we were made to live. That's, that's what the jealousy of God is. It's a twofold. It's about jealousy for his name and a jealousy for us to live the way we were meant to live. Now, here's the problem. If we're honest, we take God way too casually, don't we? I mean, even if we know we take him too casually, we still take him way too casually. We, we have these, these commandments. We looked at the first two of the Ten Commandments. God hates sin. He demands to be worshipped and to be honored, and nothing goes in front of him. But what do we say to God way too often? <clears throat> I'm busy, dude. Come on, I got, I got things to do, right? Don't, we wouldn't say it out loud. It's not like we pray, Father, you're creeping me out with your exclusivity. I'm going to worship some false gods this week, and I'm just thankful that you forgive me through Christ. And if you could just kind of leave me be and bless my false worship, that would be great. And just kind of give me everything I want is just the gist of what I'd like to say, but I spiritualize it up real good. So isn't that kind of how we carry ourselves sometimes? That's not who God is. God, God is, is way serious. He's, he's a jealous God. And he reveals this to us. He says, I hate sin. Nothing comes before me. Otherwise, you have a little problem, don't we? What, what, what's the wages of sin? And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? No. And Paul says in, in Romans 1, he talks to us about how we, we've, we've bought into these lies, we've suppressed the truth, and we've determined to worship the creature rather than the creator, right? We, we all worship false idols. It is, we're created with a need to worship. That's how God made us. And sin causes us to worship all the wrong stuff. Think about it. What in your life, all of our idol worship is what causes all of our problems, all of our stress, our turmoil, our discomfort, our anxiety, our feel. It, it all really boils down to idol worship if you think about it. Because we're putting our hope in something other than God. What is it that you feel you can't live without, that you can't have happiness without, that you can't have security without? Where is it that you find purpose, meaning, joy, love, security, etc.? Because if we truly fully found it only in God, then we go back to that Philippians 4 verse, we'd be anxious about nothing. But we all have little areas in our life. Sometimes they, they walk around and look like shorter versions of us. Sometimes they get big and look like larger versions of us. Sometimes it travels in our back pocket. Sometimes it's in our head and we call it a reputation. Sometimes it's a job. Sometimes it's, it's the way people look at us. We all tend to want to put our trust in something other than God. That's because sin has messed us up. And because sin messed us up, we stand separated from God by that sin. And there's nothing you can do to fix it on your own. Do you know, if you're not a Christian, you can't stop worshiping idols. No matter how hard you try, you cannot stop worshiping idols. Your heart manufactures them. I didn't make that term up, but I'm blanking on who did. I apologize. Credit where credit is due. We, we manufacture idols in our hearts too numerous to count. You, and you can't stop. No matter how hard you try, you will worship a false idol, apart from the regenerate work of the Holy Spirit. But even as a regenerate person, as an actual real-life breathing Christian person, 
you still have this tendency to worship idols. This is the battle that we do. It's called sanctification. You, ever, you hear me use that big term a lot? It, it means you mature in your faith. And as a baby Christian, you worship a bunch of idols, but the problem is you don't realize you're worshiping a bunch of idols. And as you mature in your faith, you're kind of horrified, like, oh my gosh, look at how many idols I'm worshiping, right? And you don't like it. Well, some of them you still like, if we're honest. But others you're, you're just disgusted by, it, and you ask God to remove them and, and to crush them and get rid of them. And then you mature more, and you're like, there are idols everywhere. And you realize what Paul says, oh, what a wretched man I am. Yeah, now, now you're getting it. But it's, it's God working in your heart with you to remove the idols. So what's going on? Has the law changed? Ten commandments, right? Well, that's Old Testament. That's works-based. We live in the New Testament, New Covenant under Christ. No works involved, right? Well, dirty little secret. The Old Testament, the Mosaic, the Abrahamic covenants, do you know those weren't works-based? Sometimes you read the Old Testament, and God gives these lists of do's and don'ts to the people, right? And then we think, well, so they had to keep the do's and the don'ts to be right with God. No. You guys know that the the Ten Commandments are a grace-based covenant with God? Did you know that? So he gave them to Moses, and then we read ahead to Exodus 34, and he's given them again. Why is he giving them again? Well, if you look a little bit around that Exodus 34 passage, he says, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Jews weren't God's chosen people and in a right relationship with him because they kept the law. No one can keep the law. It was by grace and and as an evidence of of work, God working in their hearts and drawing them to himself in a grace-based, faith-based covenant, right? You read the, the first five chapters of Romans. Abraham was not, Paul unpacks this so clearly. Abraham was not saved by works, but by faith. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness, Paul says. So the law still applies to us. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to what? Fulfill it. He says, not one little dot or iota of the law is going to pass away until, until the end. So this law still applies. So as believers, this is an amazing thing when you think about it, and I hope we all see this more fully. We do live under grace, but we still do keep the law. Wow, Pastor John went off his rocker this week. I didn't. When you think of the Ten Commandments, what do you think about? Like, what, how do you view them? Bible says God's law is not burdensome. Well, the Ten Commandments seem a little burdensome, don't they? In fact, it's supposed to be a, a joy and a delight when you unpack it. There was a man who lived in a culture where they had arranged marriages. And his parents arranged a wedding for him, arranged a wife. And he was not real happy about this. He didn't want to have an arranged marriage. He wanted to pick out his own bride. He wanted to go out and find a lady he liked and get to know her and see if they should get married. But he decided that he would honor his parents and go through with the arranged marriage. He was a little bit angry, but he was duty-bound. He was going to do this duty-bound. And he showed up at the airport to pick up his bride. This was not one of your mail-order brides. This was an arranged marriage. And when he got there, she was gorgeous. He was like, wow, this is so horrible. And then as he got to know her, she was more beautiful on the inside than the outside. He thought, my gosh, this is, this is such an honor to be married to you. And, and instead of being duty-bound, it became a joy and a delight to him to be married to her. Well, the Ten Commandments, John Piper says, the Ten Commandments are not a job description, but they're wedding vows. And I think he's right. 
when we first come to faith, you realize it was an arranged marriage. We're the bride of Christ, right? It was an arranged marriage. Well, you didn't. You, nobody here proposed to Jesus. Jesus, would you, would you marry me? Jesus actually uh, irrevocably proposed to us to an extent. He said, I'm going to marry you. And I think so much of the American culture screws us up because we got this whole messed up dating process. Do you know how screwed I'm? Young, glad my kids are young and I'm going to keep them young. Because we have such a screwed up dating process. I'm not, I'm not going to go into a commentary on it, but it's pretty messed up. In a lot of places around the world, they have arranged marriages. And there's not such a horrible thing. In fact, if I had daughters, we would have arranged marriages in the trip household. Fortunately, I don't, so we don't have to deal with the awkwardness of it. But in most cultures, you don't go around dating and, and like, checking out the ladies and, oh, this one, she's a good looker. I'm going to go talk to her a little bit. How you doing? And I move on. You know what? I can, I'll, I'll, I'll date four of them at once to speed up the problem. Oh, my gosh. It would be your parents would say, this is who you're going to marry. And you, as a, as a child, would say, okay, you don't like it. They don't really care about your preference. They're telling you how it's going to go. Well, that type of culture can more easily understand a bit of what's going on here. Because when we first come to faith, you are presented, you're, you're a real life believer. You've been convicted of sin. You, you've been saved by grace through faith. And if we're honest, you look at this and you're like, wow, we got, what's up with the law, God? You know, and here's, here's the heavy Protestant error. Warm to grace. I don't have to keep the law. I can do whatever I want and just tell Jesus I'm sorry. This is craziest setup. You just go crazy. You live like crazy. And every once in a while you show up at church and you say, I'm sorry, Jesus, please forgive me. I'm under the blood of Christ. I'm forgiven. Hmm. Then the other side, we got the Roman Catholics frightening teaching of, oh my gosh, I got to keep this law perfectly or he's going he's gonna to divorce me. He's going to kick me out. I'm not going to be his bride anymore. How am I going to do this? Oh my God, I mess it up. I mess it up. I'm going to purgatory forever. Stop. Here's the deal. As a believer, you're saved by grace through faith, not by a work of your own, by a jealous God. The jealousy of God for a non-believer is frightening because he's saying, no one will be worshipped except me. I am jealous. I am Elkanah. I am Elohim. I am Yahweh. I am Elkanah. Put those together and you have, I made it all. I own it all. I'm the king of it all. And anything worshipped other than me is getting destroyed. You know, so... You look around the world at all these non-believers. It's a frightening predicament. You're standing condemned before an all-powerful God who is jealous for his name, who will crush you. That, that's a fate that awaits a non-believer. It's frightening. But for the believer, that jealous God, oh, now all of a sudden it changes. He's jealous for us. Think, think as, as a spouse. I can only relate from, from the male side as a husband. I, I have a probably a mixed bag, but to a side, a healthy jealousy for my wife. In my power, I will do all I can to assure she is safe and happy, right? I'm not all-powerful, but I have a, a healthy jealousy for her. Now, imagine if God was the spouse involved. Do you see how the jealousy of God becomes such a comfort here? He's jealous for you as a believer. That means not only is he jealous for his name, but you now carry his name as a child of God, so any power that comes against you will be opposed by the full might of God himself. That is a comfort beyond measure. Do you see that? The jealousy of God is extremely uncomfortable or extremely comfortable, but there's no middle ground. But as we get to know God better, back to this, this Ten Commandment thing, if I may. 
early on in your faith, you kind of just got to live duty-bound. You're misunderstanding it as you do it, but you got to live duty-bound. You got to just do what he says because he says. When you have a little kid, you know, we don't, Charlie and I don't sit down and have these discussions, Charlie. You need to put your Legos away. You say, I love you, and I know what's best for you. And my goal is to help you understand that God so much more loves you than I do, and his desire is for you to know that, that his law is a boundary, a hedge to protect you so you can, you can live as you were made to live. So, so let's just pray that the Holy Spirit will work in you and open your eyes so you want to put away your leg. No, put away your Legos. He needs to understand authority. I make the law. He obeys the law. There's consequence for breaking the law, but I love him. And I, and I show him grace. You can show grace to a three-year-old. But as he grows up, he starts to think, well, dad gives me these rules, and my job is to follow the rules, but my dad actually loves me and wants what's best for me and kind of knows what he's talking about, and because of his love for me, I want to obey him because I know it goes better for me when I obey him than when I don't, right? And then when you get to be Dylan and Madeline's age, you just your parents tell you to do anything, and you're like, oh, thank you so much. Thank you for the, for the clarity and the direction. I just, I just praise you and thank No. But that's where we get with God, but it starts duty-bound. God says, do this. You know what we need to do as baby Christians? Just do it. And God says, don't do that. You know what we got to do? Trust him and not do it. Not to be right with him, but because you're right with him. And little by little, as you do that, you know what happens? You develop a proper response to the jealousy of God. You know what the proper response to the jealousy of God is? Jealousy for God. Bible uses the word zealous. You become zealous for God. You desire to want to do his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You know what he means? The better you know me, the more you realize how much I love you and thus you love me, you will actually want to obey me. You'll want to do all the crazy stuff I tell you to do. You're like, no, not really. Test him on it. Abide in him. Walk in obedience. And you'll see little by little, sometimes it's a very slow process because we fight back on this, right? But as we do, we begin to become zealous for the Lord. What's an example of of zealousy for God? John 2, Jesus goes in to cleanse the temple. Remember this? And then his disciples remembered an Old Testament messianic passage that said, zeal for, zeal, you catch that word? Zeal for your father's house will consume you. You see that? Jesus was zealous for the father. I'll throw a name out there. I know y'all don't know this one. because you got, you got to grow up in the Hebrew school or you really got to read your Bible. So I'm impressed here. Good old Phineas. You know about him? You know why you don't know about him? Numbers 25. You're like, oh my gosh, he reads numbers. Let me read you this story about, see, you, you miss some good stuff in numbers. You, you got to fight through some stuff. But I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't say that. But in Numbers 25, there's a great little one here. Phineas was a man, well, I'll I'll let the text speak for itself. Why is my Bible so sticky today? I'm in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. Let me explain what's happening. That might be helpful. Well, you know what? The word of God will speak for itself. Got nine more verses here. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. I'm in 25.1. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked itself to Baal of Peor, 
and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. I'm so glad God changed. Because that would be horrible if God was still angry at sin like that, wouldn't it? But, but praise God that, that he changes, that he's matured. Wait a minute, God doesn't change? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? That, uh, ooh, didn't, hmm. Let's keep going. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's called a really offensive spiritual adultery right there. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, saw that Aaron the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. He, he saw that God wasn't being honored. His name was being slandered. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now we're going to put this in context. No one run out of here and start spearing non-believers, Okay. It says, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was, you hear this word here, jealous with my jealousy among them. Phinehas was jealous with the jealousy of God so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Phinehas was jealous for the Lord because Phinehas knew the Lord, right? He was zealous. Now, how often do we struggle with a lack of zeal for God, right? Usually, don't we struggle with a, a lack of zeal or, or kind of a screwed up zeal? You know, it's hard to get it right. Here comes the, the uncomfortable part. How does God feel about that? I'm going to assume for this sake that, that I'm talking to the believer. Non-believer, you could be as zealous as you want. You're still separated from God, Okay. I'm, I'm talking to the believer here, a real live believer. The Bible's very clear. Once you have a faith, a genuine faith, you can't lose it. You will persevere to the end, okay? So take a real live believer who understood what they were apart from Christ, what they deserved, where they were going. Sin, separation, hell, okay? Their eyes were open to the truth. They came to saving faith. They were born anew, but they still live... Kind of apathetically, right? We were talking about this in Real Conversations, I think it was this month. What do you do with a believer who lives apathetically, who doesn't have a real zeal for God? It would be so helpful if God would explain that to us. And actually, if you go to Revelation 3, you see a Bible verse that often shows up on evangelism tracks. You ever hear that? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice... And listens to me. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And if you go through something like the four spiritual laws, you say to the person, do you hear Jesus knocking? Would you like to invite him into your life to be your Lord and Savior? Well, here's the problem. God does sometimes use our, our misusage of scripture. I know, I know a guy very well who came to faith, and he's a real-life believer. And that was a verse that God used to open his eyes, he feels except it's not speaking to non-believers. Do you know that? This is speaking to a church. It's speaking to the church of Laodicea. 
These aren't like American churches. When Jesus speaks to the church, he's speaking to the body of believers, right? He's not speaking to, well, maybe a couple believers interspersed with a bunch of tares. Listen to what he says. Verse 15 of chapter 3. I know your works. Jesus here, right? You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus talking? I will spit you out of my mouth? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Ready? This is a frightening little verse here. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Do you hear that? Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now here's your verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, do not dare be apathetic. I love you too much to settle for this junk. Be zealous. Abide in me. Obey me. Know me well. Knock, knock, knock. Open up so I can come in. But there is an act on our part. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. It somehow involves our response as a regenerate soul to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But you don't just mature in your faith because you've been a Christian for a long period of time. And Jesus detests sin especially in the life of the believer. If you think of a a great parent, a great earthly parent, do they ignore misbehavior on their child's part? Oh, you beat the heck out of your brother with a bat? (laughs) Good thing you're under grace, buddy. Go ahead, get out of here, go have fun. Don't we think God treats us that way, right? Oh, you spit in your mom's face. Good thing you're under grace. Oh, but you're under grace, get out of here. Go give her a towel to wipe it off. No, sir, if if you're a good parent, you don't come beating down and rage on your kids, but you work to discipline and restore that child so they know that's not right. And you know why you do it? Because you love them. How about if you're married to your spouse? Oh, honey, whoo, did it again. I've been sleeping around four more times in one night. Can you believe it? But I'm really, really sorry. So you forgive me. I know. Thank you so much. Yeah. Next week, whoo, a little better this week. Only two people getting better. We're growing closer. I'm maturing. You know? What sick type of spouse would that be? And what type of spouse would be like, oh, praise God. You know, you, you, No. So why do we treat God that way? Well, God, I've been whoring around with other idols, but I'm under grace. He's like, you got it, kiddo. No, he says, you, you are under grace, but, but come along here, son. Because those whom I love, mm, reprove and discipline. See, when I grew up, one of the most frightening sounds was a garage door on a day when you weren't acting right. I don't know if my parents like parented according to the most excellent parenting procedures of the culture, but sometimes my mom, you know, I've been this tall for a lot of years. I used to be about this wide, but my mom's about this tall. Somehow she's never afraid of me, and I know why. Because she would tell me when, when, when your dad gets home, no, 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 mom, please, no, no. When your dad gets home, I'm telling him what you did. 
no! You ever see like grown kids cry? No, mommy, please, I'm so sorry. Oh, so I go to my room, right? Then you're like, God, maybe he like wrecks on the way home. He gets amnesia or something bad. Don't kill him, but I don't want to die today. And the garage door would go up. We have one of those old, you know, and then you, you hear it, we have a big, heavy metal door. You're like, oh, oh. And my dad never had to yell at us. He'd come on. It was a long walk up from the I'm like, oh, and my sister would poke her head. Ooh, that's all I'm telling. Like, Ugh. So then he'd go to the kitchen. You hear him say, like, hey, honey. That's what you say to my wife. And I'm like, oh, oh. And then he start coming down in his, in his work shoes. You know, the, the wingtips. They're clanking on the wood floor. I'm like, oh. I'm like, already about to throw up. It's so frightening. And then the door would open. And I'd How's your day? And I'm like, I don't, want, I don't know what to do because maybe my mom just decided she'd let me live. And I, yeah, I don't want to throw myself on it. No need to, no need to tell too many truths. It's not a lie, right? Oh, that was so frightening. But I lived. And my dad never, he never beat me in a, in a legal way, right? But his goal, albeit misguided, was to raise me into a respectable, functional adult. That's the, that's the goal of our Heavenly Father, but he does it perfectly. And guys, what we do when we fail to understand the jealousy of God and the zeal that we need is sometimes we think we get off easy if we don't face discipline from God, right? Mm. God loves you too much. He will discipline you lovingly. That doesn't mean all of a sudden you're going to be like going through the most horrific experience of your life and, and not knowing why. Why did I do God? Why are you beating me down? Why am I sick like this? Why am I, I in pain like this? Why is everybody? Mm, that's not how a loving, when my dad would discipline me, I knew what I did. You know, it's not like my dad just, we're, we're out walking in the park. He's like, boom. I'm like, what the heck? That was for three years ago. You know, you, you know what's going on. But guys, understand, this is a warning. God's telling us, be zealous. This isn't optional, guys. I am jealous. I am your father. I love you. You're under grace. You're my son. You, that's never going to change. That is never going to change. You have eternal life. You and I, we're living together forever because I love you that much. But I love you so much, and I'm a jealous God, and my name will be honor. And you will honor it. You can come to understand that it is a joy for you to honor it. I'm inviting you into what you were made to do. You see that? But he loves us enough that he will reprove us and discipline us so we grow. It says, he who began a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Well, here's the thing. Understand the seriousness of this. The next time, the next time, I do it too, you find an idol in your heart, don't let it go. Father, I really like this idol. I'll be honest with you. I enjoy worshiping this false idol, but I know it doesn't bring honor to your name, and that bothers me. Holy Spirit, help me convict me, destroy this idol so that I might bring glory to you. Often that discipline comes in the unease that we try to cover up in our own lives. You know what I'm saying here? I want you to understand this, and I'll, I'll close with this. This is, this is such a wonderful, disheartening at times, frightening truth all bound into one. God is intense. God is serious. You know, he, the Bible tells us, it refers to him at times as a consuming fire. You know when you go to the zoo, you ever go up to the gorilla cages? They're behind glass now. I love silverbacks. You can sit down in front of those suckers. I mean, they're like three feet away. It's like, 
right? It's fun. Well, imagine going out into the jungle in Africa. Who's going to walk up to the silverback? You know, he's going to reach out and rip your head off. See, too often we treat God like he's a God behind glass, like safety glass. You're right. There's no safety glass with God. He's, he, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? Don't, don't be scared of him. He's your heavenly father. But just like my earthly father, we, we, didn't, we didn't get too casual with each other. You know, as a little kid, I could sit on his lap and he'd rub my back and, and he'd hug me and stuff. Well, when I would get home from college, I rarely climbed up on his lap because you're, you're in college. You're growing into a man. But you know what? If I need a hug as an adult, my dad will give me a hug. I know my dad will care for me so much more so with God, but there's still a level of respect because he is my father and I am his son. Well, he is my father and I'm his child by grace through faith. And we need to have that, that healthy respect relationship where, where we understand that. Do you see that? It's wonderful. It's joyful. It is everything you desire from him will be met, but there's a healthy level of respect. And that respect comes from, in part, us understanding his supremacy and his jealousy and not believing the lies that the culture teaches. So there's an invitation today that Jesus gives us here in 320. It's not a call to faith. It's a call to intimacy in a relationship with a jealous God. He says it to each and every one of us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What's he talking about eating? That's it, the most intimate type of fellowship of that time. Think of those areas. Maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting of you one now. I'm sure we all have many. Where are those areas where you put anything other than God first? Don't ever be comfortable with that. What are those things you seek to worship other than God? Don't. On your own, they'll creep in easily. I remember about eight years ago, seven years ago, right before we started God's Grace Bible Church, Laura and I had, um, had a house, no income. And I started thinking, and I fixate on things a little bit. I'm a little intense, not always in the best of ways. Well, we're going to lose our house. Where are we going to live? What are we going to do? And I remember she said to me, she says, if it's God's will that, that we lose the house, it's, that's fine. She goes, but the problem you're going to have is if you turn this house into an idol, he's probably going to take it from you anyway because of that. Do you, do you see that? Her counsel was so wise. She should preach most Sundays, you know. It was, don't make it an idol and trust God. You know, we still live there. You know, now I'm like, well, wait a minute. What about next year? No. Guys, put nothing before God. Trust him. It is so incredibly hard. But Jesus stands at the door and knocks. We should have a zeal for God, and in that zeal we honor him, we are used by him, and we have a joy in our relationship with him beyond measure. But it all comes from an understanding of God is supreme, and God is jealous. Let's pray. Father God, I, I, I pray that you would take what was from you today and, and implant it deeply in, in our hearts. There's just so much that I feel was, was put out there. Holy Spirit, I pray that that you would help us understand more fully, that you would illumine our minds. Lord God, I pray that you would create in us a, a zealousness for you, that you would give us a zeal for your name, that you would give us a desire for you and you alone to be glorified and honored because you are the only one worthy of honor and praise. Father, I, I pray that you would forgive us for all the areas in our lives where we have sinned, for all the idols that we have created in our hearts, and for all the times we have failed to trust you. Father, I thank you that Jesus 
live the perfect, sinless life that we couldn't in our place. But I pray that now that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that we have an ability to joyfully keep your law because we are right with you, you would empower us and guide us in such a life for your name's sake. Lord God, pray that we become jealous for you and for your name. And Lord God, I pray that we understand that you are jealous for us, your bride, that you will protect us, that you will guide us, that you will love us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and that we would understand the safety and security that comes from living under your protection. And we just praise you and thank you for the fact that you chose to marry us, that you arranged a marriage before the creation of time. And I just thank you for that, Lord God, and I pray that we would go out and we would invite others to the feast. And Holy Spirit, that you might work in their hearts to open their eyes to the truth so many might come and worship you while there is still time and while we still live under grace and the opportunity to be forgiven. We pray all these things in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.